All right, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me. Looking at verses 14 through 16, as we finish 1 Timothy 3 with a final contemplation on the local church. Over the last four weeks, we have been considering the qualifications of the ministers of the local church, namely pastors and deacons. And throughout this study, we have considered by proxy of the importance that the Word of God places upon uh, these offices and their functions, just how important the local church is. And this is what we're going to consider today in its fullness, uh, the, the importance of the local church. We're actually going to come to this again from a different angle in a couple of weeks as uh, we see Paul warn in 1 Timothy 4 against, again, various seducing spirits, spirits and various errors. And we're going to consider more fully how uh, important the local church is specifically to maintaining purity You know, we are in an age that has experienced a major reduction in the appreciation of the local church. There's plenty of teaching, of course, available online, interaction on social media, overtaking interaction within the real world. And as such, in many ways, in many uh, corners of, of society, the local church is viewed in modern Christendom almost as kind of a vestigial organ of the broader church. What we once needed a local pastor to do, to teach, to counsel, has been replaced by internet and television and radio, the advent of the the Christian counselor. What we once needed a local church to do, to provide fellowship, accountability, even uh, to help in times of, of material or financial need, to facilitate ministry, these have been replaced by large, broadly ecumenical organizations that have a tremendous reach and a tremendous amount of resources at their disposal. And the question is, is the local church necessary? Is it valid to have this replacement of the local church with, um, with broad and uh, financially uh, well-established organizations and internet and, and television ministries? Can those sufficiently replace the local church, or do we need to stand with a local church in careful resistance to the trend? And this is what I hope to consider today, at least in part, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. We begin reading verses 14 and 15, and the Bible says this, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, Paul writing to Timothy, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Paul tells Timothy here that he hopes to come back to Ephesus shortly. Remember uh, the context here. Uh, Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to really shore up things that were lacking as it related to the church, to uh, help the church understand things as it related to the dangers of various uh, false teaching and such. And Paul had moved on to Matthew. Macedonia at that time. He says here that he hopes to come back to Ephesus shortly. By implication, the idea is that in doing so, Paul would be able to help the church with some of the deeper implications of their structure and of their function. Uh, We talked about their function a little bit in chapter one. We talked about the structure and the authority of the church uh, here in chapter three. Paul, however, says that he wrote this in case it was going to be a long time before he was able to return that they might know how it is that they ought to behave himself in what, the, what Paul calls here the house of God, which is the church 
of the living God, and he calls it the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, it's important to keep the, this label for the church of God, the house of God, within the context uh, if we're going to understand it properly. There is some contention around this idea of what exactly is being called the house of God here. And we certainly know that the assembly, the church is not this building, right? This building is not actually the house of God. Uh, no building is the house of God. A church can meet anywhere. Last week we met we still had church. We just had it off-site. And that's what you saw if you got online and, and you, you clicked on the website. A pop-up came up that said we are, the church is meeting off-site. Or on the doors, we had the doors, and it said the same thing. The, the church is meeting off-site. The church is still meeting. We're just meeting off-site. Because the church is not this building. The church is this assembly. And so we recognize that. But the question becomes, do we need an assembly or is just the broader body of Christ sufficient? And then, of course, this question is, what really is the house of God? And the reason why we need to keep this in context, to understand it properly, is because back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul wrote something that has caused a measure of confusion to the church today, particularly among those who would call themselves emergent, the emergent church. Uh, the ideas of the emergent church were propelled by a concept. And that concept is a concept that's rooted in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, that says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so then the question is, well, is the church the house of God, or am I individually the house of God? Can I simply by myself be the church because I, my body is the temple of the Holy Ghost and thus I am sufficient in and of myself. I have all that I need in myself to do everything that God would ask me to do and I don't need an assembly. Or do we need the assembly? And this is why I said context is so important. What I'd like to do is I'm going to walk you through briefly 1 Corinthians 6 to let you kind of get an idea for what God is saying through Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. And as we do so, I think it'll become apparent that the context of 1 Corinthians 6 and the context of 1 Timothy 3 are very, very different. And that in 1 Timothy 3, we see a concept that helps us understand that the local church is important. And 1 Corinthians 6 had no intention of competing or contradicting what 1 Timothy 3 says. The context of 1 Corinthians 6 is entirely different, and Paul is speaking to something very different than the church. He's speaking to purity in our bodies. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is writing about the distinctions between the life of the believer and the life of the unbeliever. And he speaks to this nature of the life of the believer and the unbeliever as it related to church authority at the beginning, uh, talking about various aspects of church authority, about going to law before unbelievers, uh, and, and these sorts of things. And then in verse 12, he enters into a careful discussion that was kind of began in, in 1 Corinthians 5 with the idea of, of fornication not being right in the body. And a man who was, who was uh, fornicating with what we would believe to be his mother-in-law and Paul asking, why have you not cast this man out of the church? Why have you not dealt with this? And we see him really pick up this discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And in verses 12 through 20, Paul writes this. He says, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 
meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So Paul here is instructing the church about their carnal impulses. He's talking about particularly in relation to this woman and any, any arguments there might be. For whatever reason, the church suffered this guy to remain in the church. And he's continuing with this argument. And he says, meats for the belly and the belly is for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. We spoke about this just a little bit on Tuesday evening. In other words, the stomach is designed for food and food is designed for the stomach. And praise the Lord for that. Food is delicious, right? And the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Food was made to be digested and the stomach is made to digest food. It's clear that they go together, right? They are meant for each other. Food is meant for the stomach. The stomach is meant for food. They're designed to go together, but they're still both carnal things, right? My stomach is still something that when I die, it's going to pass away. It's going to go into the ground. It's going to turn into dust. It's going to return to the dust and whence it was found. Food is just food. It's something that's entirely material. It's something that is entirely earthly. Food is carnal and material. My stomach is carnal and material. They are designed for one another, but they're both going to burn, right? They're both just temporal. In contrast, Paul says, the body is not for fornication. An illicit sexual relationship outside the, the bonds of marriage as God has designed it goes outside of what the body is designed for. It goes, now, that being said, the sexual relationship and the body are, they're designed for one another, right? God has designed this to function this way. God has created us to procreate in this manner. So they are designed for each other. But fornication actually goes outside that design. In the same way that my stomach might be able to digest some things that were not meant to be eaten. My little boy, of course, he's one year old, and he's really gotten into putting things in his mouth. So we had our fireplace going the other day, and the, there's some ash in the fireplace, and I come upstairs, and his tongue is black with the, the, the pieces of ash from the fire. Now, he can eat that, but that's not really designed to be eaten, right? Uh, he, then, then he wandered downstairs a little bit later, and I hear a clink, clink, clink in his mouth, and I pull it out, and there's a, this piece of wood in his mouth. Probably got it from, you know, he wandered in the garage while I was working. There's a little piece of wood in his mouth. He was just chewing on that piece of wood. Now, he can eat those things, but that's not what his body was designed for, right? That it, wood is not designed to be digested, and the stomach is not designed to digest wood. doesn't work that way. It's the same thing with fornication. The body is designed to have that procreating role, to have that sexual relationship, but not in fornication. And that's what Paul is saying here. 
And so when, so when Paul says all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient, he's speaking within the realm of those things which don't have any particular spiritual value, not speaking of those things which are contrary to God's design. These things cannot be done in righteousness because they're contrary to the fabric of our nature. And this is the essence of what makes it sexually deviant behavior. Sexually deviant behavior is sexually deviant because it operates outside of God's design for the body. Paul states that the body is not for fornication. It's for the Lord. And that, quite particularly, those who are believers are members of Christ's body. This is our assurance and our hope of the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised up and we are Christ's body, therefore we too will be raised up. And Paul says that there can be no proper, no upright, no righteous way to be joined to one in fornication when we are also joined to the Lord. And he appeals to the command of God that the two would become one flesh. He argues that it absolutely cannot be righteous to join one's body to a harlot when one's spirit is joined to the Lord. This is fundamentally contradictory one to another. That in Christ, our bodies are the Lord's. And so it is fundamentally, it it fundamentally does not work. It's outside of God's design to have our spirit committed to the Lord and our body doing that which is so fundamentally contradictory to Him. This is confusion. And it cannot be right. So Paul exhorts the church in verse 18. Flee fornication, stating that whereas most sins are sins that are outside the body, a lie is an offense against the truth. Coveting is an offense against my neighbor, uh, as is murder and, 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 and theft. These are offenses against my neighbor. Um, blasphemy is an offense against the Lord. But fornication is an offense against your own body. And this body is the vessel for my spirit. And my spirit is intrinsically connected to the Lord if I'm in Christ by virtue of the Holy Spirit being inside of me. And so to sin against my body is to sin, verse 20 says, against the vessel in which God has chosen by his spirit to make his dwelling place to make his temple. And if we are bought with a price, if we are redeemed and sanctified, then we ought to keep our temples from being spiritually defiled because the Holy Ghost is there. He indwells my body, thus it becomes, in essence, God's temple. Now, as we consider this brief explanation, this brief interpretation of this passage, notice that Paul is speaking about the nature of of sin, and specifically fornication, and why it is a clear offense to the Lord and to my own body without controversy. It is not talking about church, right? This passage is not talking about the assembly, This passage is not talking about church authority. It's not talking about whether or not we can or should meet. It's talking about my body as it relates to purity. That the Spirit of God is in, that I am connected to the Lord through the Spirit of God that indwells me. And that for my body to be joined to an harlot while my spirit is joined to the Lord is deeply, it just, it, 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 it's contradictory. It's confusion. It is, it, it, it does not work. It cannot be right. It cannot be right. And that's the idea there. However, many, have peop- many people have taken this verse, verse 19, stripped it of its context and used it to argue that since the body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, who is God, then I am the temple of the Holy Ghost, therefore I am my own church. I am my own assembly, me and the Lord. 
and that that is enough. And that would stand in conflict to how Paul defines the church in 1 Timothy. As Paul speaks of the assembly of the body, a place where there are ordained authorities over the body, there are bishops and there are deacons, where there is structure, where there is order, where there is assembly, where there is exhortation, where there is edification one among another. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the assembly of the living God. So what do we do with this? How do we reconcile that our bodies are the temple of Holy Ghost and the church is called the house of God? Well, we reconcile it naturally. The context in 1 Corinthians 6 does not speak to the assembly of the believers. The context in 1 Timothy 3 does. So as I preach this message, I'm preaching it within the context of the context of 1 Timothy, which is the assembly of the believers, the function of the assembly. When you come together, Paul exhorts people to come together. 1 Corinthians 11, we see an exhortation to come together. Hebrews 10, an exhortation to come together. Here in 1 Timothy 3, an exhortation to come together. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, an exhortation to come together. God wants us to assemble. The people in Corinth, Paul is seeking to help them understand the natural contradiction between one who would say all things are pure in Christ and to apply that to things that are against nature. Paul did acknowledge all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. The things that are lawful are lawful, but not expedient, just like with food. All things are lawful, but not expedient. Any food has been designed for my body to digest. My stomach is designed for the food. My food is designed for the stomach. But that doesn't mean I should eat everything, right? If I eat everything, it's not going to be good for me, even if my, my body is designed to digest it. That's the idea of all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. If I see a whole table of food, all of that is lawful. My stomach can, barring some unique health concern, my stomach can handle all of that food, but that doesn't mean I should eat all of that food. But then Paul transitions to, there are things that you shouldn't eat. So if I see all of that food, you know what I'm not going to be thinking about eating? The plate that the food is on, right? That, that, that is a contradiction. I, I, I'll digest all the food, but I won't digest that plate. So I'm not going to eat the plate. I'm going to eat the food that's on the plates. But I'm only going to eat the foods on the plates that are expedient for me, that are best for me, that are right for me, that I can handle. And I'm going to leave the other ones there because they're lawful but not expedient. Then Paul contrasts that with the things that are not lawful. The plate will never, ever, ever digest properly because your body is not designed to digest plates. That's fornication to the body. That's the context. The context is not the church. And so these things, the, there are two things here that can be true at once. First, that my body is the abode of, of God's Holy Spirit. Thus, by extension, it's incumbent upon me to function in my material and physical body, which will one day return to the dust from which it came. It's incumbent upon me to function in my material and physical body in a manner that is consistent with the fact that my spirit and my body are connected. Thus, I need to operate my body in that manner that is consistent to the fact that my spirit is connected to the Lord. None of this has anything to do with the assembly of the believers. That's not the context of 1 Corinthians 6. And so a second thing can be true at the same time, which is that God has given a special commission and function to 
an assembly that goes beyond just me, rooted in the saints coming together under the guidance and authority of ordained and functioned leaders. And don't lose this. It's not enough to say that a group of believers meets together and that's the fullest expression of a functioning church. As we see a functioning church, we'll see it from Ephesians 4, we see it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's leadership, there's organization, there's function. Yes, the body fellowships together. Yes, you certainly don't need to have a pastor and deacons around in order to fellowship. But the body, as God has designed it to be, has a structure. A functioning local church structure, process, and order. But as Paul exhorts Timothy to proper behavior in the assembly, which is the house of God, the proper behavior has been seen throughout 1 Timothy. Chapter 1 spoke of doctrinal clarity and purity, and we're going to see it again in chapter 4. Chapter 2 spoke of continued supplications, prayers, intercessions, given of thanks for all men, and especially for those in authority. Chapter 2 also spoke of when they come together, women being submissive in the assembly, women operating in shamefacedness with sobriety, expressing the essence of godliness and virtue, not teaching, not usurping authority over the men. And then chapter 3, which speaks about those leadership roles given to men, the bishop and the deacon. And this is what a proper functioning church looks like. If these things are missing, if doctrinal purity is missing, if prayer among, the, uh, among God's people is missing, if submission among God's people is missing, if leadership, care within the bounds uh, of, of clear qualifications of bishops and deacons, if that's missing, then the church is not properly structured as Paul has exhorted the church to function. So that's what Paul says here. He says, If I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. That's what these first three chapters have been. This is how you behave yourself in the church of God. This is what the church of God looks like. And so that's what we seek. This is, as, as we've said any number of times, the, the, the word of God is quite general as it relates to what a church looks like. It, it, it is not specific. There's not a long checklist. We can't go down that checklist and say, yep, this, 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 and this. But there are a few things, and those are found in 1 Timothy 1 through 3. This line of reasoning forms the basis for why it is specifically that we regard the local church as something particular, something valuable, and something irreplaceable. That I can't just sit in my house, listen to sermons on the internet, and say I'm doing church. That I can't just invite a few people over to my house, talk about the Bible for a couple hours, and say that that is, that is all of what church is about. Because when Paul says this is what I'm writing unto you and I'm doing it to know how the house of God ought to behave. He talks first about doctrinal purity. Then he talks about prayer. Then he talks about submission. Then he talks about offices. And he tells us this is why he's writing it so that we can know how the church ought to behave. There is no broad, far-reaching organization that would properly be able to produce these results. To unite God's people in spiritual fellowship, in doctrinal purity, in prayer, and in submission under united and ordained leadership, you can't do that with a broad, far-reaching organization 
And without these things, the way the Bible prescribes church to behave is not there. We've said time and again throughout this chapter, all these chapters, in fact, that the prescriptions for the church are quite minimal. But this is what we see. It exists as a shadow of how the church ought to operate. And to that end, I don't think we should let it go lightly. Now, the point of this distinction is to help us understand that the church is not just universal, that the church is not just made up of every person who has accepted Christ from every generation, uh, or, or even the, the, the idea of the church being everyone alive today that's accepted Christ functioning together. That is certainly there. There is that mystical union of believers functioning together or apart, but that is not everything. And we know that that's not everything because that mystical union of believers functioning all around the world, uh, functioning either together or apart, is not what Paul is describing in 1 Timothy 1-3. through This view of the church cannot account for these instructions. 1 Timothy chapter 1-3 through 3 needs local involvement to be effective. So then the next question is, Does God want all of his believers to be in one of these functioning assemblies? Well, we consider a couple of weeks ago, as we thought on the nature of the church and its functions and its offices, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to go back to Ephesians 4 today, and we're actually going to end up in Ephesians 4 again in a couple of weeks as we try to understand all of the different nature uh, functions of of the, the local church. In Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read you verses 1 through 16. So it's going to be a little bit longer passage to read this morning. But we're going to do so with an eye toward this idea of what does the Lord want from us. Verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul writing, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness and longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So Paul talks here about the unity of the body. And take note of how this body is described. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And to this body, the scriptures tell us, what is foundationally given apostles and prophets, which we studied five weeks ago together, 
And that forms the foundation of the body. The apostles and the prophets were the foundation with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone upon which the church body is founded. And then built on top of that is the body under the structure of evangelists and pastor teachers. Evangelists being those who have that particular gift of going out and winning the lost to Christ. And then the pastor's, pastor teacher who has the particular gift of, of um, guiding the body of Christ into truth. So that the body thus may become perfected, do the work of the ministry, built upon one foundation, and the body is mutually edified. Now notice how we transition from one body to the clear call that this body, built upon a single foundation, be led by pastor teachers and aided by evangelists. And to be led by pastors and teachers and to be aided by evangelists until we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto perfection. So while Paul teaches this as one body, he also acknowledges that this body has not come into the unity of the faith yet. And we recognize that that unity of the faith and that perfection is found in that time when the Lord will bind us all together in eternity. So the picture here is of all of us individually laboring in local bodies, of those of us supplying what, the, what, what, what each joint supplies, what each part of the body needs underneath leadership, given evangelists and pastor teachers, so that the body may grow under these ordained leaders, guarding the believer, as we see here, against the winds of doctrine. He says here that the reason why he's given us these things so that we can do the work of the ministry, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That means that there must be stability. And we're going to talk about this significantly more in two weeks. That God has ordained, ordained the church to be st stable, to be functioning, to have leadership, to have accountability, to, to hold the line, if I may use the word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3.15, to be the pillar and the ground of truth. The pillar and the ground of truth. Christians are designed, if I can say it this way, to, be, to have a herd mentality. Or a pack or a pod, whatever you want to call it. Stronger together than we ever could be apart. See, it's easy for Satan to deceive one. We're warned, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. My children and I were watching documentaries th this last week on big cats. We talked about lions and tigers and cheetahs and jaguars and leopards and pumas. And as we watch these documentaries, of course, particularly when it, when it comes to lions and how they are very much pack hunters in a sense, pride hunters as it were, right? They have prides. Any big predator is going to look for the straggler, right? They're going to look for the weak. They're going to look for the slow. They're going to look for the sick. That's how Satan is described. It's easy for Satan to deceive one, but if that one is submitted to a body, under qualified under shepherds, then each of us individually benefits from the protection of the whole. That when I hear something, when I learn something, and I come into the body and I say, I just heard this, I just learned this, there's an opportunity for the whole to protect from false doctrine, from error, from confusion. 
There's a stability. There's a groundedness. And thus, each one of us becomes spiritually stronger by the body within which we reside. So that the body unites to speak the truth in love, to not be swayed by every wind of doctrine. Because there are those over the body who are qualified to lead and to guide. And because the body is coming together, as 1 Timothy 2 says, to pray for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead peaceable lives and godliness and honesty. And that the women are coming and exemplifying their submission, that men are teaching, that men are serving, that women are, are serving, that we are coming together under a unified purpose. And so the whole body is joined together by the strength with with which each one of us, each individual joint supplies. Each one doing our part, contributing as we are able in order that the whole body, not one joint, but the whole body might benefit and grow and be protected and increase. And we can thus use that as the firm foundation upon which we reach out to this world. And that's God's design. One more example of this from 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to read another longer passage. This is a passage that speaks of the the gifts of the Spirit, which I've talked about. I've preached through 1 Corinthians. Feel free um, to go back and listen to those messages online if you want to know a little bit more about what this passage is saying. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says this. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Right? The manifestation, whatever manifestation of the Spirit God has given you, whatever abilities in the Spirit God has given you, they are not given to you for you. They're given to you to profit with all. To profit everyone. To profit the body of Christ. For to one is given the Spirit of the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and self same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all, members, all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are, uh, are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been, made, uh, have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they the many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. 
and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all members be, uh, rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. We have the same illustration here of the body that's built up with, by which every joint supplieth, as, as we saw in Ephesians 4. Only here we consider the deeper nature of each person's part, that God has made each of us different, having different natural abilities, having different learned skills and knowledge, having different giftings by the Spirit, not so that the body can be at constant tension and division, saying, aha, I have this and you don't have that, or you have that and I wish I had that and I don't and you're this and I'm that, but rather that as we submit to our head, which is Christ, we can all use our particular gifts and our abilities to increase and benefit the body. And when we were in 1 Corinthians, of course, the exhortation was, find out how you can benefit the body. Every single person who is a believer, who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, has been gifted with some means by which to bless the body. And it's our job to find out what that is. So that we can be a part of the body. As we all submit to our head, which is Christ, we all use our gifts and abilities to increase and benefit the body. Operating under the leadership, as 1 Timothy 1-3 through has taught us, of pastors and deacons called to come together to prayer. Women in submission, men in leadership, caring for one another, building up one another. Once again, as we see these broad prescriptions in 1 Corinthians, broad prescriptions in Ephesians, and we filter them for, through 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3, we recognize that this cannot be done without a local application. Having those in leadership over us, binding us together, coming together for prayer, coming together to serve, protecting one another that we be not driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so, though we all have different roles to play, no one can say that they don't matter because we all have a role to play. And with these two passages having been read to you today, I submit to you not only that God has designed His church to be realized in a local and a physical way through ordained leadership, but that this is essential to God's plan for this age. The local church is not just helpful, it's not just useful, it's essential. I also submit to you that the Bible fundamentally assumes that God's people will operate within the fellowship and the accountability and the protection of a local body of believers for the increase of the body to be the pillar and the ground of truth. And what is this truth of which the church is considered to be the pillar and the ground? Well, verse 16 tells us this. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. We memorized this at the beginning of our time in 1 Timothy. We guard this truth that Paul calls the mystery of godliness. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, what, what a mystery is. I'm not going to rehash that. It is a message which was previously hidden from mankind, but now is manifest, and manifest specifically in this case to the church. The key to the spiritual life, the essence of the Christian faith, 
that God was manifest in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God proved God became flesh when he descended upon him in the form of a dove, and that voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, that the Spirit of God empowered Jesus for ministry, that the Spirit of God rose Jesus from the dead. He was seen of angels. Certainly Christ's work was witnessed by the heavenly hosts who declared his birth in the spirit realm after the resurrection when he led captivity captive, declared his victory. Angels, of course, being simply the word for messenger, could also be speaking here of those who Christ had commissioned to be witnesses of himself. He was seen of messengers. He was seen of the apostles. He was seen of those who are now taking his message to the end of the world in Paul's day. He was preached unto the Gentiles which Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6 calls a mystery in and of itself, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in, the, uh, in Christ by the gospel. And he was believed on in the world. As men and women of every tribe and tongue have come to recognize the redemption of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, believed on in the world, finally received up into glory where Hebrews chapter 10, verses 13 and 14 tell us he then sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel that unifies us. This is the the truth that the church is called to be the pillar and the ground of. This is the thing that unifies us all in Christ. Together in one body, unified under a single head who is Christ, led by ordained men, praying always for all men, submitting ourselves in love, stronger together than apart. This is the gospel which we guard and which we live and which we boldly proclaim to the ends of the earth. If by any means we might see souls one to Christ by coming to the knowledge of the truth. And that's us. That's what we're here to do. That's why we exist. That's what we exist to do. That's why we function. That's how we function. And so two questions as we wrap up this morning. Question number one, how is your relationship to the gospel? How is your relationship to the mystery of godliness? How is your relationship to an understanding that you're a sinner? That because you're a sinner, you've been separated from God that that separation of fellowship with God means that you, can't, you cannot and do not have a relationship with Him and your sin has separated you from God. But that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That His Son, named Jesus Christ, was born of a virgin, was born under the law, lived as a man, was a man, but without sin. And He lived that life without sin, but at the end of that life, He gave His life. On the cross. And the Bible tells us that while Jesus hung on the cross, the Father made him the Son to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That God took your sin, your punishment, and he placed it on Jesus Christ that you might have the chance to be forgiven. And the scriptures tell us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To believe is not simply to acknowledge these facts to be true. The Bible says in James that even the devils believe and tremble at the reality of who Christ is. The question is, have you submitted to him? 
Have you placed your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ? So that when you stand before God one day, and he were to say, why should you go into my heaven? Your answer would be because Jesus did the work for me on the cross. That there's nothing in me. There's nothing about me. I can't work my way to heaven. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't be good enough to get to heaven. I can't be good enough to be restored in fellowship with God. I can't earn my way to God. I can't work my way to God. It doesn't work that way because I am already guilty. But God has already done the work through Christ. Of course, Jesus didn't stay dead. The Bible tells us three days later, he rose again from the dead, and that's important. Because if Jesus had proclaimed that he could give you eternal life, if Jesus had proclaimed that he could reconcile you to the Father, if Jesus had proclaimed that he would be for you the forgiveness that you need in order to be right with God, and then he died and he did not rise from the dead, if we could go find his bones and worship at his bones, he'd be no good to me. He'd have no power. How can he give me eternal life if his bones are in the grave? But if he rose from the dead, he proved that he could do everything he said he'd do. And he proved that the Father approved of his message. So that one day, I can have that confidence of knowing that because he lives, so too will I. How's your relationship with the gospel this morning? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 and 14, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Second, Subpoint under this idea. First, have you received the gospel? But second, as it relates to your relationship to the gospel, Paul asks this question. How shall they hear without a preacher? This is not the word pastor. This is not pastor teacher. This is that the, the word is simply a proclaimer, an announcer, a herald. This does not speak of an office or a function in the church. I'm not your hired gun to go out and to win people to Christ. That's not the function that I have as a pastor. That's a responsibility I have as a Christian, but that's not my function as a pastor. But how shall they hear without a preacher? How will people hear the gospel if we who are collectively charged with being the pillar and the ground of that truth aren't also proclaiming it? How's your relationship to the gospel? First, have you accepted the gospel? Have you received the gospel? Is the gospel yours? Second, are you an accurate representation of the gospel? Are you proclaiming the gospel? Are you living the gospel? Does your testimony reflect the gospel? Does the gospel have power through the manner in which you live your life? How's your relationship to the gospel? Second point, how's your relationship to the local church? The local church is not as appreciated today as it has been in times past. This particularly related to the philosophy of the emergent church, which has stripped from the conscience of man, of the church, any sort of expectation of order and structure and behavior. Modern technology has simultaneously connected us more and more and driven us further apart at the same time. And in this age and in this time, 
the local church is just as necessary as ever, and in some ways perhaps more necessary than ever, to keep us connected to that community of believers, that we be not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It used to be that a pastor could have a general confidence that if his people needed some spiritual guidance, they'd come to him. That if they needed to know something about how the Word of God was interpreted, they'd come to him. And because of that general level of confidence, he knew that as long as he stayed right, his people would stay right. It's not that way anymore, is it? You're going to get up and you're going to go from here and I get you for, if you come to everything, I get you for three, four, five hours of teaching a week. If you come to everything that, that, that we do as far as teaching. And yet you could spend the rest of your week listening to evangelists online and on the radio and on the television and you could receive significantly more teaching from others than from me. And that's in one sense, a great blessing of this age, but it's also a great danger, right? And so perhaps the local church is more necessary than ever that we can come together so that the things that we're hearing and the things that we're learning can be vetted through the body to keep us grounded that we be not carried away with every wind of doctrine. And so Paul says, and again, we're going to come back to this passage in a couple of weeks, in in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Paul said, as the day of the Lord comes closer, as things wax worse and worse, as he warned in 2 Timothy they would, there is all the more reason for you to unite with other believers. All the more reason to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is as we see the day approaching. Do you see it that way? Do you believe that? Are you a member in particular? Are you providing for the church that with which your joint can supply? which your part of the body can supply? Are you a part of the body's growth and edification and increase? Are you functioning in the body's effort to maintain itself as the pillar and the ground of truth? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.